Welcome to Simple Truth, the teaching ministry of Pastor Eddie Turner and Family Worship Center in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. Through the practical and simple explanation of God's Word, Pastor Eddie has taught the Word of God to thousands of people around the world. The following message is from a recent service at Family Worship Center in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. Let's join Pastor Eddie as he shares simple truths from God's Word. Hey, turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We're studying the book of Corinthians, and, uh, and uh, I, I hope you come on Wednesday nights because uh, we're going to take about 40 minutes every Wednesday night and dig into this. And uh, we'll probably still be studying it when Jesus comes back. Um, but for Pastor Wayne, he can continue it after we're gone, all right? 1 <laughs> <First> Corinthians... <laughs> 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Y'all know I love Wayne, don't you? 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1. Let's read the first seven verses. I'm going to read out the New King James Version. It reads like this. Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God and Sothenus our brother, verse 2, to the church of God which is at Corinth. So in these first few lines you see the two main questions that if you want to be, um, get a good grasp of the Bible, of a particular passage of the Bible that you're reading, you always ask two questions. Number one, who's writing? Number two, who are they writing to? So if you can understand who's doing the writing and who they're writing to, you can get kind of a framework of the culture and the history uh, behind uh, the writing. So in these t- few lines right here, automatically we see the answer to those two questions. Number one, Paul is writing. Number two, who's he writing to? He's writing to the people of Corinth. Notice what it says in verse two, to the church of God, which is at Corinth. Now that's not the church of God in Cleveland, Tennessee, all right? It's the church of God at Corinth. To those who are sanctified, in Christ Jesus. So you need to understand this. He's talking, he's writing to those who are sanctified, meaning he's writing to Christians. He's not writing to the world. He's not writing to sinners. He's not writing to the general public. There's some things in this book that are written to the church that are not um, uh, in effect for the general public. In fact, it's difficult for the general public to even understand Uh, parts of the Bible, because it's not been written to them. So notice what he says, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified, that word sanctified means set apart, in Christ Jesus. So that's talking to the born again, children of God. So he's writing to Christians, called to be saints, with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. So not only is he writing to the church of Corinth, he's also, notice what it says, he's writing to everyone in every place who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we can literally say it this way, this book has been written to us. Okay, If we're born again, if we're children of God, if we're Christians, if we have Jesus as our Lord and Savior, this book is written to us as well. Verse 3, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
We'll talk about that when we get there. Verse 4, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace which was given to you by Christ Jesus, that you were enriched in everything by Him in all utterance and all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you. So, now look at verse 7, so that you come short in no gift. You come short in no gift eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is where I want Family Worship Center to be. This is what God wants us all, every church to be. That we come short in no gift. That we come short. In other words, He wants every church, He wants every local church, every local body of believers to be to the point where the gifts of the Spirit are in manifestation in that church. That you don't have one or two lacking. Right now, we have several that are lacking as far as the manifestations of the Spirit. Word of knowledge, word of wisdom, uh, discerning of spirits, uh, prophecy, uh, tongues, interpretation of tongues, healings, uh, working of miracles, special faith. That's, that's, part of the, that's nine manifestations of the Spirit. Then you have the five-fold ministry gifts. We'll start talking about those tonight. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. And then you have other types of gifts. The Bible talks about the gift of he, the gift of uh, giving. The Bible talks about the gift of mercy. The Bible talks about the gift of service. So there's the Bible lists a bunch of different gifts in the Bible. And the Bible says here, Paul says here, as far as you Corinthians, you come behind it. You've got them all in operation. You've got people in your church that are walking in a level of maturity that they can operate in many of these gifts of the Spirit. And he says, you come behind in no gifts. Now, at the same time, understand, we're going to later read that these people sued one another, that they were having incestual relationships with family members. They were, they were a split bunch. Half of them like the senior pastor. Half of them like the associate pastor. They were constantly bickering and fighting. And yet the Lord says, you come behind in no gift. And yet the Lord says to them, we just read it, grace and peace to you from the God the Father. In other words, even though they were immature in a lot of areas, God was not mad at them. See, that's something that I've had to learn as I've matured in my relationship with the Lord. Growing up in a Pentecostal church, I was kind of, it was insinuated that God was always ready to get you. He was out to get you. In fact, if you went to the altar on Sunday morning and give your heart to Jesus, if you had a bad thought that afternoon, you would go to hell. So you went back to the altar Sunday night. Anybody know what I'm talking about? In fact, that's the reason we had such great altar calls. When I see these pastors saying, boy, the altars were... Every time they post on Facebook, we had a great service, the altars are full. The altars are full. And I know they're running 58 in their church, and the altars are full. I know the pastors just made them feel bad during the service, so he got them to the altar. But notice, even though these people had immaturity, they had sin in their church. They, had, uh, they were acting in ways they shouldn't act as Christians, yet the Lord still sends them grace and peace. Because he's not mad at mankind. He's not. People say, well, God's going to judge the church. Yeah, he will. He, he said he's going to, but that doesn't mean he's mad. He has to judge them, not because he's angry. He judges them because he's a just God. And he has to. And always understand that. God is not mad at you. 
Jesus Christ took the mad out of God for us. All right? He paid the price for us so that God's not mad at us. That's why the Bible tells us in the fourth chapter of Hebrews, it says, let us come boldly to the throne room of grace to obtain mercy so that we might find grace to help in time of need. Listen to what it says. Let us come boldly to the throne room of mercy so that we may find grace to help in time of need. The Bible says when we need it the most, it's when we need it the most and when we need mercy is when we have done something that we deserve mercy. And he says at the time where you deserve mercy, when you've messed up, when I've messed up, when we've messed up and deserve mercy, he says at that time we don't go like this. Oh, he's going to get us. Oh, please forgive me. He says come boldly. Come boldly. Why? Because he's not mad at us. He loves you. He loves you. He sent His Son to die for you on the cross of Calvary. He paid the price for your sin. He, has, he is not imputing our sins to us. He loves you. And if we can get that foundation built in our relationship with Christ, we will be a lot more joyful every single day. All right? Now, several Wednesday nights ago, we began looking at the book of 1 Corinthians, and here's some things we discovered. We discovered that the church Paul is writing to was located in Corinth. Thus the reason the book is called Corinthians. Corinth is located 48 miles from Athens, Greece. We discovered Corinth was a coastal city that was known for two harbors, which was a major trade route moving items to all the parts of the known world at that time. So it was an industrial city. It was a very diverse city. We understood that the people of Corinth placed a high value on education and wisdom. All Greeks did that, but Corinth as well. At the same time, because of the location and access to the various cultures of the world coming through their shipyards and their harbors, Corinth was very diverse in its culture. We understand that Corinth was a very religious city with 12 different temples to various gods. One of the most noteworthy was a temple to Aphrodite, the Greek goddess of love. Then we understand that Corinth was also a city filled with immorality. All right? It was a city filled with immorality. You know, we have some things in the South that, and although it's changing, in the South there's some, just some things that are unaccepted morally in the South. Not up in Michigan, everything's accepted. But in the South, in the South, there's some things that are just not accepted morally. Understand, Corinth was not that way. There was no unaccepted things. It was just uh, a free-for-all when it comes to sexuality, promiscuity. That's the kind of culture that this church these people came out of. Corinth was a city filled with immorality, being a major trade route, all types of people with various beliefs and vices came through Corinth, much like Las Vegas or some of our party cities in the United States today. In fact, the worship of Aphrodite fostered prostitution in the name of religion. At one time, historians say that there were a thousand sacred priestess prostitutes who served at her temple. 
So sailors and people of that nature and people traveling through would come to worship Aphrodite just to fulfill their sexual vice. So widely known did the immorality of Corinth become uh, that the Greek verb to Corinthicize came to mean to practice sexual immorality. All right? That's how widely known their immorality was. And it's a setting like this that this church is built. It's a setting like this that Paul goes and preaches. It's this setting that that these people come out of and accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Now here's what else we learn. The Apostle Paul visited Corinth in, in the 50s A.D., somewhere 50s A.D., and later wrote two letters back to the Christian community at Corinth, and they are known as the book of First and Second Corinthians. So this, these, this First Corinthians is a letter that Paul wrote back to the church at Corinth, the Christians at Corinth, after he had left, after he had built and established the church. We know that Paul lived in Corinth for 18 months. He lived in Corinth. When he first went there, he lived in Corinth for 18 months. He worked as a tent maker, all right? He was a bivocational pastor. He pastored the church. He built the church. He did Bible studies. He witnessed. He debated. And also to make his living, he was also a tent maker. And he spent his time converting Jews and pagans. And here he he met Priscilla and Aquila. Okay? Priscilla and Aquila. You read about them through the books of, of the New Testament. They became great teachers in the local church. So he met them, and some people believe he probably lived with them during his 18 months there. So let's go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. That's just a brief uh, background. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God, and Sothisness our brother. So we see that Paul is the writer, and notice he has an assistant in writing. And his assistant is named Sosthenes. And we, we find out here that this guy, Sosthenes, was a ruler in the synagogue. He was a Jew who was a ruler in the synagogue. Remember when Paul went there, they had all these 12 temples, and one of them was a Jewish synagogue. So there were Jews already in Corinth, and Paul went to preach there at the synagogue about Jesus Christ. Paul was a master Jew. And he met and converted this one fella, and this one fella became a convert and later became one of the leaders of the church at Corinth. And we later discover through this writing that he was Paul's assistant in writing this letter back. You say, how do you know that? Okay, turn with me to Acts chapter 18. Acts chapter 18. Turn over to Acts chapter 18, verse number 14. Acts chapter 18, verse number 14. Everybody over there? Acts 18, verse 14. How many brought your Bibles? Good, good. Give you a chance to turn over to Acts chapter 18. But just as Paul started to make his defense, Gallio turned to Paul's accusers and said, Listen, you Jews... If this were a case involving some wrongdoing or a serious crime, I would have reason to accept your case. But since it is merely a question of words and names and your Jewish law, take care of it yourself. Now this was an uproar that happened in Corinth. And they pulled Paul in before the uh, courts. 
And the judge says, listen, I don't want to have anything to do with you guys. This has nothing to do with our law. That's y'all's law. You take care of it yourself. I refuse to judge such matters, and he threw them out of the courtroom. Now look at verse 17. The crowd then grabbed Sothenus, the leader of the synagogue, and beat him right in the courtroom. (laughs) That's a bad day. All right. The judge throws it out. You think we're acquitted. We're going to get off this thing. And then your accusers beat you up right there in the courtroom. And he said that Galileo, the, the judge, paid no attention to it. He let them beat this guy up, the leader of the synagogue. Why? Because he was a Jew and the Greeks couldn't stand the Jews. They were a nuisance. They were a pain to them. So they let him beat him up. This guy becomes Paul's assistant. The guy got beat up becomes Paul's assistant in writing the book of Corinthians. Now, here's what you have to understand. Paul was so effective in witnessing that people who had been steeped in Judaism, because you don't become the leader of the synagogue without going through a lot of education and training in Judaism, he was able to help these people to see the truth. And the leader of the synagogue became a Christian and later became a leader in the church and became part of assistant to helping Paul write one of the New Testament books. Now, verse 1. Paul, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God. So here we discover that Paul identifies himself as an apostle. Notice what it says. Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ, through the will of God, through the will of God. And then the word apostle, we discovered this, literally means a sent one. One sent out as a messenger, a commissioned representative. In other words, Paul didn't say, listen, I'm going to do a, I'm gonna do a, a gifts assessment of my life. I'm going to do a personality test of my life and see what I want to do with my career. I want to do a gifts assessment and see what I'm gifted to do so I can make up my mind what kind of career path I want to choose. The Bible says here that Paul was called by the will of God. Now here's something you have to understand. Apostle, he calls himself an apostle, which is a sent one, a messenger. In other words, God picks that person and sends them out. My granny used to say, son, make sure you're called, because some are called, some are sent, and some just packed up and went. <laughs> and, uh, and you've probably sat under some people that wasn't called, they wasn't sent, they just packed up and went, because they wanted to be in the ministry. Well, he says, he says I'm called of God. In other words, I, didn't have a, I had a choice in this matter, but this was, God wanted me to do this. This is my purpose This has been my purpose for living, okay? And I think one of the greatest joys in life is finding your purpose for being here. Finding your purpose for living. What is your purpose for living? And and doing that, that gives you joy. Everything else is a job. You hear people say, well... uh, Some people call this a job. It's not my job. I just love doing what I'm doing. Why? Because they found their purpose for living. One of the most difficult things is spending 40 years in something that you can't stand. It's just a job, and you know it's not your purpose for living. 
Okay? So Paul says, I'm called. This is my purpose for living. I'm called to be an apostle. Some people are called to be teachers. Some people are called to be engineers. Some people are called to be medical professionals. Some people just help. Some people help another company fulfill its purposes. Some people are called to be contractors. Some people are called to be electricians. Some people, you you can be called to be, you can have the giftings for a lot of things, but getting in that gifting really brings joy to your life. And Paul says, I am called to be an apostle. And the word apostle literally means a sent one. A sent one. One sent out as a messenger. A commissioned representative. Now, when, when was Paul called? He said, I'm called. Isn't that what he said? I'm called to be an apostle. God called me. Go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1. Notice what he says. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. When did that happen? When was he called by God to be an apostle? When was he called? He said, I was called. Well, let me show you where he was called. Turn with me to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. Turn over to Acts, the book of Acts. The book of Acts chapter 9. Look what it says in verse 1. Acts chapter 9, verse 1. Acts 9, 1. Meanwhile, Saul was uttering threats. Paul was referred to as Saul. Now he himself had said in another place that he was a Jew of Jews. He was trained in the highest Jewish educational place you could be trained. He exceeded all of his... He was brilliant. He was a genius. Most scholars think that Paul was a genius. He was a a, a literal genius. And he knew Judaism backwards and forward. He had excelled in Judaism. He was rising through the ranks. And he was a very aggressive Jew because anybody who, who was not obedient to Judaism, they'd send Paul and his team in to eradicate them and get rid of them. And we pick this up in Acts chapter 9. Meanwhile, Saul, that's what they called him earlier, previously, Saul was uttering threats with every breath and was eager to kill the Lord's followers. So he was so passionate about his faith that he was killing Christians who were, were against the faith. Uh, kind of like the uh, radical Muslims today. That's, that's the kind of spirit and culture that he came out of. Just, you, you're either a heathen or you're a follower of what we believe in. And if you're a heathen, you don't deserve to live. That's the way Paul was, okay? So he went to the high priest. He requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus. Isn't it amazing? Now, now you just reading the... Uh, news this past week, I think is Monday, another big bomb explosion in Damascus. They've been fussing and fighting and killing one another for years. John Kerry's a fool to think that he can bring peace over there. They've been fighting for years. They'll be fighting long after John Kerry's gone. He requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus, asking for their cooperation in the arrest of any followers of the way. Notice he called Christianity the way. He found there. He wanted to bring them, both men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains. Now notice, he's not going to preach to them. He's going to arrest them. 
men and women. All right, men and women. Verse 3, as he was approaching Damascus on this mission, a light from heaven suddenly shone down around him. He, Saul, fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. Now notice what Saul says. Who are you, Lord? See, he had enough of Jehovah in him to know that this voice he heard was not a man-made voice. He just didn't know who the God was that was speaking to him. All right? And the voice replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Now, let me ask you a question. Who was Saul killing and persecuting? Who was he killing and persecuting? Christians. Christians. Believers. Saul was persecuting Christians and believers. And notice what Jesus said to him. Notice what the voice said to him. Saul said, who are you, Lord? Saul asked. And the voice replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Now, who was Saul persecuting? Christians. He wasn't persecuting Jesus. Jesus had already been crucified, buried, resurrected from the dead, ascended into heaven. This is 25 or 30 years after the resurrection of Christ. Yet Jesus says, you're persecuting me. So what's Jesus saying? You do it to my church, you do it to me. All right? Now this needs to stand as a warning to us. That when we talk about the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, we're talking about Jesus. So we need to be very, very careful. need to be very, very careful of our criticism. We need to be very, very careful of our words. Notice Jesus didn't say, Saul, why are you hurting those people down there? Why are you hurting those people who believe in me? Why you, Jesus didn't even say, why are you persecuting those Christians? He says, you are persecuting me. Remember what the Bible says? Christ is the head. We are the what? Body. We are the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is the body of Christ. All right? Everybody still here? All right. Let's look at it. Let's go on and read. And the voice replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. And we could spend a whole hour and a half on that right there. Sometimes the Lord doesn't show you the end from the beginning. Notice the Lord told him one thing. Get up and do this. Go to the city. Once you get to the city, you'll be told what to do. People come to me all the time and say, Pastor, what do you think the Lord wants me to do? I say, what do you know you're supposed to do right now? Well, I'm supposed to do this, but I need to know what, I, what that's going to lead to. I said, a lot of times you won't know until you do what you're supposed to do. A lot of people want to know the end from the beginning. Sometimes it doesn't happen that way. Every once in a while, the Lord might show you the full picture. But many times he won't show us the full picture because he knows we'll get scared and won't go. So he takes us one step at a time. Notice what he says, get up and go into the city. And once you get in the city, you will be told what you must do. Verse 7, the men with Saul stood speechless, for they heard the sound of someone's voice, but saw no one. So they heard this voice talking to Saul, but they didn't know where it was coming from. Saul picked himself up off the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he was blind. So his companions led him by the hand to Damascus. 
he remained there blind for three days and did not eat or drink. Now, just think what's going through his mind. For three days, all he knew, he was supposed to go to the city. And he's blind. He's heard a voice from heaven identifying himself as Jesus. He can't see. And now he's blind, waiting for three days. Verse 10. Now there was a believer in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord spoke to him in a vision calling Ananias. Yes, Lord, he replied. It's amazing how Ananias knew the voice, but Saul didn't know the voice. All right. The Lord said, go over to Straight Street to the house of Judas. That's located over there at Lytle and Maney. When you get there... When you get there, ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. So he's seeing in this vision supernaturally. He is praying, this man, when you get there, ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. He is praying to me right now. I have shown him in a vision of a man named Ananias coming in and laying hands on him so he can see him again. So he can see again. Verse 13, but Lord exclaimed Ananias, I've heard many people talk about the terrible things this man has done to the believers in Jerusalem. And he is authorized by the leading priest to arrest everyone who calls upon your name. So you understand Ananias' hesitancy. The Lord supernaturally appears to Ananias and he says, Ananias, Ananias knew it was the Lord. He said, yes, Lord. Remember Saul said, when the voice spoke of Saul, he said, Who are you, Lord? Ananias said, Yes, Lord. He, he recognized the voice of the Lord. And he said, Now, Ananias, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go into the city, to the street called Straight, the King James says. This New Living Translation says, Straight Street. And he says, uh, Go in there and ask for a man named Saul. He's praying right now. He's praying right now. And he's praying, and you're going to lay hands on him. And uh, I'm going to heal him. And uh, Ananias says, Now, Lord, you know, I've heard about this guy. He arrests Christians. He binds them. He hurts them. He injures them. Are you sure you know what you're doing? And notice verse 15. This is important. But the Lord said, Go, for Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message... What is an apostle? A sent one. A representative. Here's his call right here. But the Lord said, Go for Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and to kings as well as to the people of Israel. So when Paul said, back in Corinthians, when he said, I'm an apostle called by the will of God, this is what he's referring to. This wasn't my chosen career path. This is what God has chosen for me. This is His call. Now look at this. Let's go on and read. Uh, let, me, let me, I don't have it there, but let's, let's go on and read verse uh, Acts chapter 9. Let me turn over here in my, my real Bible, the King James. Acts chapter 9, verse 15. Let me read Acts chapter 9, verse 15, 16, and 17 out of the King James Version. Notice what it says. But the Lord said unto him, you got it in the New King James, that's good. Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine.
to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. Do you have verse 16? For I will show him, now notice this, I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias went his way and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you came, he has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Ghost. All right? So Paul is called of God. And uh, God uses Ananias to go and confirm that call and to reveal that call to Paul. So Paul is, Saul, Paul, is an apostle called of God by the will of God. Now, this word apostle is an interesting word because it means a sent one, a messenger, someone sent out by God on a special assignment. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 8. The word apostle is one, an apostle is one of what is referred to in theological circles as one of the five ministry gifts given to the church by God. All right? There's five of them. There's five, we call them offices. There's five offices that people stand in that have been given specifically by God as gifts to the church. As gifts to the church. All right. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 8. Let's read it out of the New uh, Living Translation. Ephesians 4, 8. This is why the Scriptures say, when He ascended to the heights, He led a crowd of captives. Now notice this, talking about Jesus. And He gave gifts to His people. Jesus gave gifts to the church. What are those gifts? Pick it up in verse 11. Verse 11. Now these are the gifts. Everybody say gifts. These are the gifts Christ gave to the church. The apostles. What's an apostle? A sent one. Comes from the Greek word apostolos, which means a sent one. Messenger. The apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the pastors and teachers. Apostles one. Prophets 2, evangelists 3, pastors 4, teachers 5. That's why they are referred to as the five-fold ministry gifts. There's five of them. They're offices. Okay? They're offices that God gives to the church. They're gifts to the church. All right? They're gifts to the church. Notice the Lord designates five different categories and He calls them gifts Christ gave to the church. They are the apostle, the prophet, the evangelist, the pastor, and the teacher. So let's talk about them. The apostle. What does it it mean to be an apostle? What does it mean to be an apostle? Sometimes you'll see people call themselves an apostle. Let me tell you something. You don't have to call yourself an apostle to be an apostle. In fact, somebody who constantly calls himself an apostle, I'm usually a little suspect of them. Okay? An apostle, what makes an apostle? First of all, an apostle is a preacher or a teacher. Notice in all of these giftings, you're going to hear the same thing. Their main objective was to preach and teach. Their main objective was to preach and teach. Even a prophet. A prophet's main objective is to preach and teach, not to prophesy. Is to preach and teach. Look with me at 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1. Paul's talking to Timothy. 
And he says, to which I was appointed. Paul's an apostle. Remember, he called himself an apostle. But he says, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher of the Gentiles. Before he was ever an apostle, he says, I was a preacher. I'm a proclaimer of the good news. Listen to me. An apostle is first and foremost a preacher and or teacher of the Word of God. The apostolic call has nothing to do with ruling over churches or people. Okay? I've people. I've had people call me since I've been here and say, Who's the apostle over you? I said, Jesus Christ. The Bible says He's the apostle and high priest of my confession. So... They said, no, you need an earthly apostle, and we're that apostle. We need to be over you and over your church. See, they're misled. Because an apostle is first and foremost a preacher and a teacher of the Word of God. The apostolic call has nothing to do with ruling over churches or people. In fact, if an apostle is a governor, governor over a church or a group of churches, it's only those churches which he has established or, or, or birthed. In fact, Paul says, I will not press beyond my measure. He said, I will not go out and try to be over somebody that I didn't help bring them into the kingdom of God. Okay? So understand that you hear a lot of crazy stuff going on in the body of Christ. And people ask you, who's your apostle? Well, just tell them, the Lord Jesus Christ is our apostle. All right? Look with me at 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12 tells us something in it. You just don't have, you're not an apostle just because you decide to call yourself an apostle. A true apostle will have signs and wonders following his ministry. Signs and wonders. Notice what 2 Corinthians 12, 12 says. Truly the signs of an apostle. Paul's talking here. This is his second letter to the Corinthians. He says, Truly the signs of an apostle were accomplished among you with all perseverance in signs and wonders and mighty deeds. So Paul not only had, was a preacher, he had miracles operating in his ministry. Amen. He had some supernatural things taking place in his ministry. If people say they're an apostle and they don't have any supernatural working in them, they're not an apostle. Understand that, okay? To stand in the office of an apostle... One must have a deep personal experience with the Lord, something very real and beyond the ordinary, as Paul did. Okay? An apostle has a unique ministry and an anointing upon his life and that he can go into a town and raise up a church. That's what an apostle can do. He can go into a town. He's a church planter. Now, what's the other one? We'll close with this one. The prophet. Remember, there's five gifts to the church. Apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher. Now here's something. Let me me share this with you. What happens in the local church is that we rub shoulders with some of these people that stand in these offices and we become familiar with them. We become familiar with them. And we lose... Uh, our respect for the office. We lose our respect for the office. And, and that's, a cha- that's a challenge for me as a, pa- as a pastor because I deal, I, I deal with men who stand in some of these apostles and prophets and if I'm not careful because I go out and eat with them and I hang out, I lose respect for their office. 
And it's just to be honest, it's a challenge to differentiate between them as human being and them as the gift of Christ to the local church. So there's, I've had to learn over the years, there's a fine line. There's a fine line. I'm working with a church right now. They run a little over 3,000 every Sunday. And the church is getting ready to split. Getting ready to split. And some of the, the board of directors and some of the staff members have come against the lead pastor. Now, they've called me and help us, pastor, help us to work through this situation. And there's going to be either a split or it's going to be a splinter. I've already told them. You're either going to splinter or you're going to split. Something bad's going to happen. You need to understand that and get ready for it. But what has happened is some of the staff, because they've rubbed shoulders with the pastor so long, they forgot his God call and they see him in his humanity and all of his weaknesses. They see him in his humanity. You hang around me long enough, you're going to see I'm a human being. I've been blessed to be able to lay hands on the sick and see them recover. I'm blessed to be able to be used of God in some wonderful ways, but I'm still a human being. I'm just a human being. That's all I'll ever be, okay? Now, Amanda, she's a different level, but I'm, I'm a human being, see? So what happens is there, it's a fine line, and what people do all the time is they, they, they give in to the spirit of familiarity, and they lose the respect for the office, okay? Now, a prophet, what is a prophet? A prophet. Turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 9. 1 Samuel chapter 9. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 9. This is the Old Testament. Notice what it says. This says it really good. In those days, this is the Old Testament. 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 9. Everybody know where that is in the Old Testament? That's in the front part of the Bible. All right. 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 9. In those days, if people wanted a message from God, If they wanted to hear from God, they would say, let's go and ask the seer. For prophets used to be called seers. One who could see. In the Old Testament, the position of a prophet was a divine guide. They were the divine guides of the people. He was sent by God to lead. The prophet was sent by God to lead the people of Israel. The prophet at that time was called a seer. The common person, the average lay person, didn't have the Holy Spirit living on the inside of them in the Old Testament. Now see this word, how many of you have seen on TV these preachers say, I'm, and they call themselves prophet, and if you'll call in, I'll give you a special word. All right? Well, in the Old Testament... Since if Mike would have been living in the Old Testament, he couldn't have heard from God unless he went to a prophet. The reason why is because Mike didn't have the Spirit of God living on the inside of him. So the Spirit of God wasn't living on the inside of Mike. He was just following God according to the law of God. And to hear what God was saying, he had to go to a prophet because the prophet was the seer and could see the future for Mike. All right? That's why that scripture says in 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 9, if we want to hear what God, a message from God, we need to go and ask the seer. All right? Because we can't hear from God. That's the difference in the prophet under the Old Testament and the prophet under the New Testament. So nowadays you have people who've gotten the ditch on this 
because they're trying to operate in the prophet's office under the Old Testament, but we're living under a better covenant established on better promises. Now we have Jesus on the inside of us. We have the Spirit on the inside of us. And the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 8, verse 14, as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. And then in verse 16 it says, for His Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. I don't have to go to a prophet to get a word today. I've got the Spirit of God on the inside of me that will give me a word today. All right. So if somebody tells you, you need to go see so-and-so and he'll give you direction for your life, understand they're telling you wrong, inaccurately. You don't have to go to some somebody to get a word of direction for your life. You, if you're a child of God, you have the Spirit of God living on the inside of you. And the Bible tells us in the book of Philippians, for it is God in you both to will and do of His good pleasure. And His Spirit bears witness with our spirit. And when people come to see me and they say, Pastor, what do you think God wants me to do? I'll say this to them, very first question, what do you have on the inside of you? What do you sense right here when you pray? Because His Spirit bears witness with our spirit. Well, what's my spirit? The Bible says the spirit of man is the candle of the Lord, searching all the inward parts of the belly. I call it your knower. What do you mean, my no? You know, if you ever had that thing, you just can't put your finger on it, but you just know on the inside, this is what I'm supposed to do. I just know that I know. How do you know? I don't know. I just know that I know. I just know that I know. People have come up to me over the years and said, uh, you're not saved because you didn't get baptized in our church. I said, I'm saved. Well, how do you know you say? I just know that I know. I just know it on the inside. I'm born again. I'm saved. I have the witness of the Spirit on the inside. And see, that's how the Lord leads us. As many as are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. And His Spirit bears witness with what? Our spirit. Now, there might be times, because God's a sovereign God, that He will give somebody a word for you. But that word should only confirm what you already have in your spirit. You've heard me tell this story. I had a couple come to me, and they hadn't been married long. And they were having marital problems. and I mean, they ended up 12 years. I've never seen a couple fuss so much in my, in, in my ministry. They fussed terribly, hated one another. And finally, after about the third session, I said to them, why are you still married? Why, don't, I, I, why you hate one another? Why are you married? Well, it was prophesied we should get married. He'd say, you're the ugliest woman I've ever seen. I can't stand to even wake up in the morning and look at you. He told her on their wedding night, you're ugly. You know, I can tell you, if you start that way, chances are it's not going to be a good honeymoon. <laughs> honest to truth. I'm telling you the honest truth. And I just finally said to them after three sessions, of, why are y'all staying together? Well, we don't want to displease God. What, what do you mean displease God? Well, we were not church service, that's when they told me, we were in a church service, somebody got up and prophesied, thus saith the Lord, called him by name, you're supposed to marry her. He'd never seen her before. And you're supposed to marry him. And out of fear of displeasing God, they went within two months and got married. And lived miserable lives. And stayed married for 12 years of fussing and feuding. 
and finally ended up getting a divorce because some so-called prophet gave them direction. But it wasn't on the inside. Listen, if somebody comes up to you and says, Thus saith the Lord, and speaks something to you, and it's not confirming something on the inside, you just need to put it on the shelf and keep going. All right? Everybody with me? All right. Now, let's see where we are. I'm getting hungry. I had nothing to eat. we got to hurry up. Prophet or no prophet. I'm going to prophesy. I'm going to go get me a Big Mac. Go back to what we said about the apostle. The same is true for a prophet. A prophet's primary purpose and main ministry is to preach and teach, not to prophesy. Prophesying is not the main thrust of the prophet's ministry. Jesus was a prophet. He didn't go around prophesying over everybody. He didn't give everybody a word. In the Old Testament, the prophets didn't go around giving everybody a word. These things on TV, you call me, we're going to give you a word. I see these guys advertise crusades. Everybody that comes is going to get a word. That's not scriptural. It's not biblical. And in fact, they'll tell you, if they're not careful, they're getting over in familiar spirits. And the devil's involved more than the Holy Spirit's involved. Jesus was the greatest prophet and knew things supernaturally, but he didn't go around giving everybody a word. Remember the woman at the well? He says, go call your husband. She says, I don't have a husband. Jesus knew this supernaturally because he was a prophet. He said, you're right, you don't have a husband. In fact, you've had five husbands and the man you're living with now is not your husband. She said, how'd you know that? Well, he knew it because he was a prophet. He could see into the lives of people. Okay? But Jesus didn't go around prophesying to everyone he met. Many people think the prophet ought to go around giving out personal messages all the time, leading and guiding people by that office. One who operates in the prophet's office also operates as a seer. A seer is one who sees into the realm of the spirit and can see things that other people do not see. I'll close with this. There's a difference between the office of the prophet and the simple gift of of prophesying. Okay? The office of the prophet is an individual who has been divinely called and anointed of God to stand in a certain office and he has the supernatural working in him from time to time. Okay? What supernatural? He's a seer. He can see into the realm of the spirit. Word of wisdom, word of knowledge, discerning of spirits. He can see into the... What is the word of knowledge? Word of knowledge is divine facts in the mind of Christ, in the mind of God, that have to do with the president. Things that are unknown by most people, but the person who operates in the word of knowledge knows that. What's the word of knowledge? Divine, a word of wisdom. Divine facts in the mind of God that have to do with the supernatural revelation of the future. What's, what's the discerning of spirits? Discerning of spirits is the supernatural revelation seeing into the spirit realm and seeing angels and demons and things of that nature. Let me tell you something. You hear people say, well, they have the gift of discernment. There's no such biblical gift as the gift of discernment. That discerning they're talking about is their spirit man on the inside just giving them information, showing them things. There's no such thing as the gift of discernment. You can't find it in the Bible. There's the discerning of spirits, not the gift of discernment. Discerning of spirits, meaning they see into the spirit realm and see angels, 
demons, the similitude of Christ. They see behind the veil. There have been a couple of times in my ministry that I've laid hands on people and have seen into the spirit realm. Only a couple of times in my ministry has I seen. When the Lord appeared to me twice, when He appeared to me twice and I was caught up, I saw the discerning of spirit. I saw the similitude of Christ. I saw Him in His glory. One time I was caught up into heaven and I saw Christ in heaven. I went to heaven and I saw... That's in the spirit realm. That was the discerning of spirits. I, for a moment, parted the veil of the natural and went to the supernatural. I left the temporary and went to the spiritual. And that's as God wills. You know, I'll be honest with you, I wish it happened all the time, but it's as God wills, not as man wills. Okay? So discerning of spirits is seeing in behind the veil, seeing into that realm. So a prophet operates in that. But a person in the church can operate in the gift of prophecy. A prophet talks about the future. The simple gift of prophecy is for a totally different thing. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 14 and I'll close with this. 1 Corinthians 14 verse 3. Talking to the church at Corinth. 1 Corinthians 14, 3. Let's begin with verse 1. Let's begin with verse 1. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 1. Follow after love, desire spiritual gifts, but rather that you may prophesy. I'm reading it out of the King James. For he that speaketh in an unknown tongue speaketh not unto men, but unto God. For no man understandeth him, howbeit in the Spirit he speaks mysteries. That's a whole different subject. Now look at verse 3. For he that prophesies speaketh unto men to edification, exhortation, and comfort. There's a difference between the office of the prophet and the, pers- the Christian who is prophesying. The office of the prophet sees into the future. The first person who the Spirit of God just comes upon them to prophesy is a person who speaks to men for edification, exhortation, and comfort. Okay? In church services, sometimes we'll have somebody give a prophecy. Has nothing to do with the future. It just encourages the saints. It encourages them. It builds them up. That's the simple gift of prophecy. Now the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, oh, I wish I had time to teach you this. In 1 Corinthians 4, it says everybody can operate in the simple gift of prophecy. But not everybody can operate in the office of a prophet. That's a divine call by God. But the simple gift of prophecy, where you speak unto men under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, just to edify them, to encourage them. The Bible says everybody can do that. Every Christian can do that if they'll yield to it. Every Christian. And then the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, it says don't despise prophesying. Don't despise prophesying. You know, we Pentecostals, we've seen so much, for lack of a better word, junk in the church that when people, somebody gives up and starts to give a prophecy, first thing we do is, oh, here we go. Here we go. And you know what we've learned, we've started doing? We're despising it. I'm praying that the gifts the manifestations of the Spirit will start to flow at Family Worship Center. That prophecy 
if, if God-given prophecy starts to come through some of the people, they'll start speaking to edification, exhortation, and comfort. It'll be a blessing to our church. That never takes the place of the Word of God, but it just adds to and blesses, confirms. All right? So a prophet and a person who prophesies are two different things. Okay? We might have a person, we have a couple of people in this church who are used in that area to, pro, to, to prophesy, but they're not prophets. All right? But they're used to exhort people and encourage people and build people up when they speak. Have you ever noticed when somebody starts to give a real prophecy from God, there's an authoritativeness about it. There's an encouragement about it. It just ignites the atmosphere. Thank you for listening to The Simple Truth with Pastor Eddie Turner. Please join us at Family Worship Center, 3045 Memorial Boulevard, Murfreesboro, Tennessee, when you are in the Middle Tennessee area. You can also learn more about FWC at our website, www.familywc.com. Thank you again for listening to The Simple Truth.